1: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time Together. Uh, I'm going to be having a conversation in a moment that reflects the uh, post budget issues, but much bigger than that the state of the economy, the challenges for Labour in this current context, um, and we'll be exploring themes and going delving deep. Just before we do, um, a reminder that uh, Rock and Roll Politics is live next week, uh, live in Birmingham on Tuesday. Uh, that's sold out. Those two words sold out are Paul McCartney's favourite words in the English language, and I can see why. Uh, And on Thursday, March the 23rd, live at King's Place, uh, where we will be reflecting... On the consequences of words and actions, and whether leaders in the end do face the consequences of things they have said and done. The immediate context will be Boris Johnson's appearance in front of the Privileges Committee on Wednesday, which will be a moment of high drama and with some political significance. So we will gather together on Thursday to reflect on that, but we will go much wider than him in that theme. So that's live at King's Place on March the 23rd. And now, well, yeah, the budget sort of took place and kind of had a cinematic quality about it. There was the Chancellor saying all was pretty good, and yet the tubes were on strike. The following day, the trains weren't running. The doctors were on strike. If you look at the OBR, growth is... Anemic um, and with many, many other issues arising as well. And uh, I've invited in today for our conversation someone who is exceptionally well placed to analyze some of these themes. He's Michael Jacobs, currently professor of political economy at Sheffield University, but crucially has in his political career touched all the bases that we have been reflecting on in some of these conversations. In the build up to 1997 he was chief executive of the Fabian Society. So is brilliantly placed to make a judgment about whether there are any parallels between now and 97. He was hugely engaged with the new Labour project I remember it well as being political editor of the new statesman some of the things he was doing then then in the gordon brown era uh when he was prime minister uh, michael was responsible for climate change and energy in number 10 as a key advisor to gordon brown then later uh he was uh involved i think uh, chair of our check uh a major report on economic policy for ippr the left of center think tank uh it was published in 2018 and had a fascinating response in that the then shadow chancellor john macdonald said this could be our beverage uh, a guide to uh, radical reform but it was also backed by the then backbencher rachel reeves it did command at a point where Labour were fighting all over the place, wide support. And as says say, as a Professor of Political Economy, well judged to make sense of the economic situation now. Michael, thanks so much for coming in to join us. I want to focus more on what Labour should and could be doing in the current context of uh, what the government is doing and the economy more widely. But just on the government, what was your take on the budget as you heard it being unveiled by Jeremy Hunt? I think the first thing that any political observer would
2: say is Hunt is a good performer. He is calm, he's confident, and after the turmoil of the last few years of conservative governments, uh, they did look like somebody who was a grown-up in charge. He made one very significant announcement, I think, uh, which has a bit stolen uh, some of Labour's clothes, which was the announcement on childcare. It will take a bit of time to come in, but in principle, providing free childcare from nine months to pretty much five years, is a very significant intervention in the labour market in making it easier for particularly for women to enter the labour force. Um, and but that was really the only significant thing that he did that Labour probably would have done. And the underlying figures that the Office of Budget Responsibility produced yesterday are terrible. Jeremy Hunt was trying to say, you know, Britain has a great future, bigging up the industries that we're good in. But we've been good in those industries for a while. The problem is we have very, very weak growth. We have uh, uh, a configuration of the economy which leaves most of the country out of that growth. It's almost all occurred in the London and the South East, and we have a labour market that has is unable to pay wages that people can live on. We've got vast numbers who can't earn enough to get out of the benefit system. Tax credits are subsidising employers. Uh, wages now for huge numbers of people, very insecure labour market. And as we know, public sector workers have experienced a huge uh, reduction in their real incomes. And that's why they're on strike. So the underlying economic position really isn't good at all.
1: Yeah. So let's have a look. You mentioned that um, there was some clothes stealing in the budget. Now, it's interesting, in your uh, seat a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, the shadow education secretary, Bridget Phillipson here. and, And I could tell she kind of almost ached to be more ambitious and to say more. She cited other countries with really ambitious childcare plans. Does this not present a real political, the, the risk of caution, if you like, is that you vaguely have a childcare policy that's going to be a, a, a big pitch at the election and income the government with a precise one, albeit you say, you know, years ahead. And suddenly the clothes are stolen with ease because it is so imprecise How lab, what the ambition and scale of it was going to be and how it was going to be funded. So Labour is in uh, an awkward position and people like me who focus on
2: policy, want to see a bit more radicalism, um, are inevitably frustrated. And within the kind of left of centre ranks, both amongst the MPs and members and so on, there has been a lot of frustration with Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves for being too cautious. But as an observer of politics, I also know that Labour doesn't do anything in opposition. You can be as radical as you like in opposition. If you don't get into government, uh, you can't implement those plans. And to get into government, you have to win an election. You have to win it in the specific seats that you've got to contest. You don't win it all over the country equally. You don't win it by talking to Guardian readers, um, by and large. You win it by focusing on the seats that you came second in last time, or in some cases, third. And by definition, those are places where people voted Tory. So you've got to win over Tory voters. And so Labour is stuck in this rather awkward position of trying to make sure that it appeals to those people and particularly doesn't frighten them, while also offering something radical enough to all the young people, the left of centre people, the people who might vote Green or Lib Dem. So we've got a kind of disconnect, I think, between what Labour really needs to say to really confront the issues that the country faces to address the policy questions, if you like, with its natural political concern that it has to win. And I think that's the awkward position Labour are in now. But are you saying to me Labour could be a bit more expansive, a bit bolder? Well, yes, they could.
1: Yeah, and they could in that context. Of course, you know, every Labour person would say they have to win. So the key is how. And you think in that context, they can still be bolder as someone who's followed Labour in government and in opposition?
2: So I think the the problem politically they have is exactly the one that you've just said, which we've identified over childcare, which is Labour has at the moment a public position, which is we want better childcare, but haven't set out a strong, well-defined policy for it. And now the Conservatives have pretty much stolen that. Um, So Labour will no doubt match it. But even if Labour comes out with something a little bit better, the Conservatives have got their policy and they can say, to to parents over the coming years, you will get free free childcare. And there's a number of other areas where Labour is in danger of having a kind of policy, something which at the moment does distinguish them from the Conservatives, but the Conservatives could adopt because it's too vague, it's too minimal. And if Labour goes into the next election unable to say why they would be different then you have a political problem, which is a competent looking conservative government with the economy a bit better than it is now, which it almost certainly will be, can say we have the answers and Labour has no better answers. So this is, I think, going to be the, the difficulty for Labour, but the area where it really needs to look at saying, OK, there have got to be a few things where what we are saying matches the scale of the problems. I don't think the British public are fooled by uh, claims that Great, Great Britain is uh, you know, growing a little bit faster than some other countries. That's because our economy is been worse than they are. I think most British people understand that our problems are pretty serious. And if they are serious, you have to have policies that match that that depth of problem.
1: So give me an example where you would go, for want of a better word, bigger, more radical now uh, in opposition. So I think uh, um, the uh,
2: Labour's position on On companies, uh, on on the way companies are structured, is still too cautious. Naturally, the Labour wants to kind of have a good relationship with business. They don't want to frighten the horses and so on. But we have a business structure and a financial structure which is still wholly geared towards shareholders. And shareholders have become, the finance, the city has become very, very short termist over the last 20 years. So looking for short term dividend returns and doesn't invest enough in long term growth. This is the critique sometimes known as financial. And we have world-leading industries in some sectors, but we have many which are not. And as soon as you get a good startup in this country, it gets bought out, and then the company is owned overseas, and all the big returns uh, from new tech companies and so on go overseas. So we need to build up our industrial strength. And to do that, you need long-term investment, you need company structures where ownership uh, is not simply in short-term shareholdings, but is in long-term shareholdings. You probably need workers on boards to anchor those companies in the interests of the people who work for them. And you need long-term investment. That needs a state investment bank of some kind. So this is about the institutions of our economy. It's not about the day-to-day things that politicians tend to deal with. It's about the structures of our economy. And our economy is very weak in those structures. Look at the way the German businesses are structured, the way German banks are structured and they are geared towards long-term investment. And that's why Germany has been a much better manufacturing country than we have. We've lost uh, those capacities because our structures aren't right in the city and in our businesses.
1: I want to uh, explore in a way what you have done vis-a-vis Labour as a way of testing where we are now. But just before we do, one other issue. I mean. Keir Starmer, and Rachel Reeves mentioned it in her post-budget interviews, has got this mission, in inverted commas, uh, to achieve the highest sustainable level of economic growth. Now, some economic economists, Will Hutton, to name one, tell me this is impossible while we're out of the single market. It just won't happen. Is that your view? Do you think from the perspective of opposition Keir Starman could find a Harold Wilson-style formula of words to keep all options open, so that if this does seem to be a necessary route towards growth, he has the space to do it in government. I think there's, there's there's a huge gap between
2: now between what Labour will say now and what it will end up doing in government. Possibly not in its first term, but in a second term if it got one. That's always true, by the way. Margaret Thatcher is famous for all the things she did in her second term, not what she did in her first term. The radical things tend not to happen immediately after an election that you won by being
1: Although, a bit that, I know that's said about Thatcher. It is interesting, isn't it? The monetarist economic policy was a sort of near economic revolution. And didn't work. She had to change herself. That happened from 79. And, sale and the sale of council that, houses happened in the first term. So some it of it work. did, but not but not all of it. And not the monetarist the part of it
2: didn't work. The privatizations uh, uh, and so on. But I don't think it's, it's conceivable now for Labour to go into this election uh, with a commitment to to get closer to Europe in, in, in terms of the single market. And I'm not sure that that looks credible. I think if you talk to European politicians, which is immediately where the media would go and say, talk to people in Europe, you know, do you see the possibility of UK re-entering the single market? They would say no. So I don't think that's something that we should be looking for from Keir Starmer. I think, if Labour did have two terms, then it is inevitable that in order to uh, get a, a serious economic program going, we would have to get closer to the single market. I'm interested in exploring parts of the single market. We've now got a situation where the European Union and the United States are going to go big on green technologies. That's the big thrust of the Biden administration. And now the European Union has responded. There is a real anxiety in many other countries, in, in, including Japan and Korea, about a kind of two big blocks of, of country is really pushing industrial strategy in the low carbon technologies of the future. The UK is in a very weak position as a single country, not in a common market uh, and not with a big continental industrial strategy, I'd like to see Labour saying, could we enter a green single market with the European Union where we contribute to innovation funds and we become part of a single market for environmental goods and services so that we can be part of that revolution too. And this is where I think Labour's ambition needs to be. It's to think strategically about the economy. I was pleased to see Keir Starmer adopt the idea of missions. That is an idea actually which comes from a quite a radical economist, Mariana Mazzucato, mm-hmm. who I know yeah. has been talking to Labour as yeah. she has been talking to the European Union and the United States and other places. And it is the idea that the state has a crucial role in the economy. We've become so used to the idea that basically the state leaves the economy to itself, adjust taxes a bit, yeah. we leave the Bank of England to do inflation policy. That is no longer the world we live in. China has not been living in that world for a very long time. And that's why China has cleaned up in so many of, in fact, the environmental sectors, as well as silicon, as well as chips and so on. Mm. I think both the US and the EU now realise that you need a real state involvement Mm. to push the economy in the right way. If you leave markets and private sector themselves, what they do is they invest in some sectors in the UK, brilliant financial sector not only in the London, the southeast, but very much around the London, the southeast, doing well for itself and the rest of the UK economy really not working. That's why we have so many disadvantaged areas. The reason we've got a leveling up agenda is because the, the economic system has leveled down. We need yeah. the states to really take a role. Yeah. And, I and think it's interesting that's that the you see those change.
1: mission statements as partly a way of framing greater state activity, which is interesting. And, and yeah, the economist you mentioned, just remind me who the economist is. Mariana Mazzucato. Yeah, we must get her on. I mean, she, she's obviously uh, and engaging. I work, with, yes, with, and I, I uh, did and, a book with Mariana called... With and Rachel Reeves yes, and others.
2: I did a book with Mariana called Rethinking Capitalism, a uh, little plug there, um, which looked at the new kinds of economics that could solve the kinds of problems we have. It does feel to me that... Um, if you acknowledge that we have deep-seated economic problems, we have a labour market that is way too insecure, so a million people on zero-hours contracts, a million British workers are on a zero-hour contract where they don't know where, well, how many hours they'll be working next week. That's extraordinary. Plus, a huge number of self-employed people who, of course, are not properly self-employed. They are just contractors to a single uh, client firm. This insecure labour market means that it's very difficult for people to have a proper living. I mean, that's what we know and young people, uh, particularly living in that world. But it keeps productivity low because what firms do is they can employ an extra hour of labour now instead of investing in people and in equipment and so on. You look at our productivity rates, much lower than almost all of our European competitors and uh, and business investment, much lower. So we've got deep problems. And if you have deep problems, you can't use the economics have got us got us to that state
1: okay now let's go back a bit uh context is one of the favorite words in this uh podcast i mentioned earlier uh you were chief executive of the fabian society in the build-up to 97 and as you know one of the discussions at the moment is is this closer to 97 than night 90, or is it 1992 and i was interviewing andy burnham a few weeks ago, and he was saying this is emphatically not 1997. Uh, You know, the economy was growing and so on. Now, when you were at the Fabians, you just, uh, in the build-up to the election, put out an interesting report on tax. Now, actually, what Gordon Brown then did was stick to Tory income tax plans and so on. Do you think that's what Labour will do this time? And do you think they shouldn't, given that the economy isn't growing and they're going to need money? So uh, we're not in the same situation uh, as the run up to 97
2: at all, because yeah. uh, as you said, we had a growing economy. Uh, We had benefited from the crash out of the European exchange rate mechanism. Uh, That devaluation gave uh, the British economy quite a boost. And we came in to 97 with a growing economy and with good tax revenues. um, And the situation is very, very different now. So that distinction is there. my report. The Fabian Society report, as you mentioned, the Commission on Taxation, um, argued that we shouldn't be trying to uh, uh, say that we won't raise income tax because we would need more money. Tax rates then were rather low and it was clear that Labour needed to spend money. And in the end, you do have to raise the taxes. Now, uh, the t- situation today is rather different because tax uh, as a proportion of national income is much higher now. Yeah. Now, as Rachel Ree's completely correctly says that's a product of failure. That's not that the government is spending lots of money. It's that growth hasn't been enough. So in order to raise any reasonable amount of money to pay for the National Health Service, you need higher rates of tax relative to your GDP. So she's quite right to say, let's focus on raising GDP. But in the medium to long term, so I don't think this is about the next few years. I certainly don't think Labour should say we will not raise income tax uh, rates. And Rachel Reeves has been very careful not to say that, um, because it might be that you need to do that. But in the medium to long term, we face a structural problem, again, a kind of structural problem in the British economy, which is that we are an aging society with tremendous demands on health and social care and pensions. And we don't have enough people to earn the taxes, to pay for those el- benefits mm. that for elderly people because we have a declining working age population relative to our elderly population. That's what a, an ageing economy means. That's why we have so much immigration. The reason we have so much immigration is we don't have a big enough labour force. And there yeah. aren't, you know, the Chancellor was asked this morning, on trade region was asking, are you comfortable with 250,000 net uh, net immigration? And those numbers are the residual Of the product of the economy. The economy needs workers. Mm. And that's why immigration happens, because the economy needs workers. Why does it need workers? Because we haven't got enough people of working age population who are coming into the labour force. And that means at some point we will have to look at taxes. Because to pay for the things that we want, to pay for good public services, a good health service, decent pensions, you have to have enough tax revenue. And growth can't do that all. So I do think that labour needs to be thinking about taxes. I don't think the first port of call for that is working age people in their income taxes. Mm. The big problem in our tax system is we don't tax wealth. Wealth has increased enormously over the last decade or so. F- people who owned some wealth in the, the uh, at the end before the financial crash or just after the financial crash are now four times wealthier than they were, not because they've saved a vast amount of money, but because the existing assets they had, their homes, their pension, their pension pots, their equities, their, their shares – have risen in value now that's been a product of many things partly quantitative easing various other things which you don't even get into. but we've got this huge unearned wealth nobody's nobody's done anything to get that wealth and we barely tax it at all so let's not think of income tax as the first port of mm. call if we have mm. to raise taxes let's think of wealth let's find ways of taxing that do
1: you wealth. assume they are uh, th- Rachel Reeves and others thinking along those I do lines.
2: assume that. So Rachel Reeves all she said about wealth taxation so far is that it's not fair or right that wealth income from wealth, capital gains, dividends should be taxed at lower rates than income tax. Now, if she said it's not fair, not right, that that is the case, the natural corollary is to say, well, at least we're going to equalise them. And so I do think that that is uh, in her mind. Um, She's clearly not going to publish tax plans. uh, If she can avoid uh, doing so, you know, she'll say, we don't exactly know what situation we're going to be in fine. But I think that is where Labour will have to go, because I think Labour will need some more money.
1: You were a special advisor uh, in Gordon Brown's number 10 with a responsibility for climate change and energy. And it was becoming a huge issue then. It's become even bigger since. At the beginning of the year, you wrote an article for The Guardian saying, look, you know, Keir Starmer might be using New Labour language from 95 to 97. But if you delve deeper, the policies are more radical than New Labour. Now, one of them, obviously, is borrowing £28 billion a year uh, to address climate change and at the same time, they argue, generate growth. Um Two things. Is that I mean, many people will say, "Oh God, borrowing that much is far too much, it's irresponsible. Do you think it's enough, given what Biden's doing, the EU are doing, and will it generate economic growth quite quickly? because obviously that needs to happen for labour to achieve that mission target. So it uh, it's spending twenty eight billion. That's their
2: capital allocation spending. spending twenty eight billion. Which but I think are, they are saying they're going to borrow. Well, yes. I mean, it's capital spending, so that is the thing that that Labour's fiscal rules suggest they can borrow for. Yeah. So let's. Uh, it, it probably will be some borrowing, and that's what most economists would say. Borrowing for capital expenditure, which generates growth, is yeah. is fine. That's what you should borrow for. Twenty eight billion is uh, not enough, but it's quite a large sum of money, and you don't want to be saying you're going to uh, spend more money than you can actually spend because it takes time to develop uh, uh, projects so a lot of this will be in renewable energy in uh, longer range uh, low carbon uh, energy forms carbon capture and storage tidal uh, and so on which will take time and if we're going to build uh, more infrastructure we need the workers to do that they can't all do it in the first year so it's not a it's a it's a good sum of money if you look at the think tanks and what they've been arguing most of them have said 30 billion 32 billion something like that so this is per year, remember? So actually, I don't think the quantum is the problem. I think the issue will be where do you spend it? And one of Labour's, one of the few things that Labour has specifically said it will do with the money is that it will uh, have a big programme of insulating people's homes. Now, that should have been done over the last 15 years, a terrible, terrible loss. If you look at the numbers of homes that Labour was um, insulating per year at the end of the Labour government 2010, it was vastly more per year than is being done over the last 10. And And that has left people vulnerable to the high energy cost that we're experiencing now. So many people are paying now – they are paying the cost of the failure to insulate homes because they are paying much higher bills. Had had we done all the insulation at the same rate that labor would have done, the bills that people would have been paying, particularly poor people because that's where the money was firstly going into into poorer uh, uh, income households' homes – their bills would have been so much less mm. than they would be now. Mm. So that's the priority. Labour has said it will it will insulate millions of homes over a 10-year programme. That is really good. That generates jobs, of course, and it does so all over the country. That's a, that's a very good geographic kind of policy because those insul- homes are everywhere. So I think that's a very good start. I think some of the other things that Labour has said, like it will create a publicly owned energy company, which will challenge some of the other generators to produce renewable energy, I think is a, is a good thing. Labour has also now said it will have some kind of national wealth fund, which will take equity stakes in new startups and so on. So this is beginning to look like an industrial strategy that might work. It's still very tentative. It's a bit vague, if we're honest, but it's going in the right direction. And that's why I think I have not lost hope, as it were. As I say, you know, a few people on the left have kind of thought, Starmer and and Rachel reeves they just look too cautious. They're just replaying new Labour. I don't think that's the case. I think underneath, they're doing some serious thinking. But it's not yet really, emerged. And of course, if you ask the member of the public, they probably wouldn't know any of this yet. And in the end, you've got to match your policy that's done in the background with your public messaging. And that, I think, could still be bolder. And I think there is scope for that. I don't think that's been ruled out. Yeah,
1: it was interesting reading your Guardian. Another of the areas you mentioned is industrial strategy. And I'll ask you a bit about that in a moment. But it was very interesting reading that because you're following every twist and turn behind the scenes of how policy is being developed. And of course, voters, I had Danny Finkstein in last week, he said voters don't follow anything in politics on the whole. The genius of leadership, isn't it, and it's hugely demanding, is to develop policies that link to the values of a party and then explain them. An explanation to the wider electorate is key in the build-up to an election and, of course, beyond. And it's, and it's not just explanation. It's, it's also
2: finding the resonant phrase that people yeah, can yeah, yeah. Well, that picks up all of these
1: things. Yeah.
2: And it's hard, you know. And, and uh, Blair was quite good at it. So education, education, education was not a policy, but it was quite a clever slogan. Uh, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Dealt with one of Labour's uh, kind of problems that was seen, that it, it, was, it wasn't tough on the causes uh, of oh, crime. Um, and so there, you can do it if you've got the resonant phrases. I don't think Starmer is yet there. I have to say that, I mean, he's trying sticking plaster, um, you know, for describing conservative policies. That might stick, as it were. Um, but that's all the criticism. And the criticisms are not going to be enough. When you come to an election, it is two parties against one another. And you can't simply say, don't elect the other lot. You have to say a reason. And I don't think we've got that kind of resonant language that, as you say, does an awful lot of work in a very small number of words that expresses some values express some priorities and some poli- and some policies as yeah. well. It's also, not quite there yet.
1: Uh, at the moment you can see what they're trying to do they're trying to utter things that won't offend anyone. And of course that tends towards the technocratic. You know, well if to, to quote Blair what works is what matters. Well <laughs> the whole essence of politics is a debate about what works. But if you reduce it to that, of course you have the benefit of not alienating people, but you don't explain anything really about what you plan to do. And that, in terms of presentation, is the dilemma, isn't it? I think it is
2: absolutely the issue that Labour now faces. We've got probably a year and a half to a, a general election, perhaps a bit less. And that is the moment. You know, Kirstama has been trying to explain that the first thing he needed to do was to say he wasn't Corbyn, well, wasn't Corbyn or Johnson. Um, then he needs to kind of, so he needs to get the credibility first. Then he needs to criticise the government. And the third stage uh, is, the, is the policy platform with the messaging. And we're definitely in third stage now. You know, there is no more waiting, I think, for this. And so I would expect to see by by the party conference in uh, September, October, I would expect to see much more defined policies, because even the five missions that he published the other day, they're still very general. They're goals, basically. They're not policies. And I think we will need to see that. And I think those will need to be better defined. And they will need, will need to come with those resonant f- phrases, the slogans, the sound bites, that the public can hear that, and then they know what it means. That's the key. Yeah. Get Brexit done. They knew what that meant. Yeah. And that's what Labour has not yet got. Yeah. Even though
1: it wasn't done then or since. But that's another matter. That's another matter. Just uh, uh, Neil Lawson from Compass. I interviewed him recently. He was saying uh, he was heavily involved in new Labour in the build up to 97 and during the campaign. And he was saying then, even though it was quite a cautious platform, there was a buzz around with think tanks, uh being vibrant and excited and engaging and blair and brown writing articles for you know things as varied as it wasn't just the sun and the telegraph they wrote for marxism today and and anyway you were so you were very much in that world of the fabians and then with ippr in the build-up to other elections so on and it it made me think there isn't that buzz around given labor are 20 points ahead in the polls Or is there a buzz around, but it's a bit more subdued? It's a bit more hidden? What made the buzz was the engagement of the politicians with the think tanks. It
2: wasn't just the think tanks doing the work. I mean, there were interesting think tanks around then, but there are now. If you look at the IPPR, the New Economics Foundation, Commonwealth, Autonomy, the Women's Budget Group, uh, CLES, the Local local Economic Strategies Centre, there's lots of interesting work being done. And I would say the interesting thing is that even though many of these come from different places, uh, different bits of the left traditionally, they are all converging on a very similar kind of economic strategy, which has a stronger role for the state in, in industrial strategy, which has a very strong green component, which didn't really exist in 97, uh, which is looking at the labour market and saying we need a, a higher minimum wage, we need much more secure work, we need investment in skills, um, and which is arguing for changes in the ownership of companies and a different model of, of the financial sector, as I was discussing earlier. And that is very common. Oh, and, and regional and regional devolution. That's the other crucial element. That is a very similar strategy that all of these think tanks have rounded on. The difference between now and 97 is that the politicians are not really publicly engaging with them. So what you were describing, which was Blair, Brown, engaging with the think tanks, writing interesting things themselves, that's not the sense you have now. There's lots of work going on behind the scenes. There's lots of conversations between those think tanks and the, and the politicians. But you don't get the sense that, uh, that the leadership of the Labour Party wants to engage in a kind of epoch transforming debate. And that, in a sense, was Blair and Brown did. Blair and Brown did want to say, we uh, we are doing something different. And of course, they differentiated themselves from old labour, which, as I used to say, Blair invented new labour, but he also invented old labour. That was the thing that he had to be distinguished from. And And you don't get that sense of a kind of big... Epoch-making, transformational project that Keir Starmer and the current Labour Party want to engage in, even if their first steps to it will be a bit cautious. And I, that's where I think the think tanks uh, don't have quite that engagement with. I do think this is a moment of transformative change for me, and I think for many of those people in the think tanks, this is a moment that needs to be like 1945 or 1979, when. To put it simply, a failed economic model needs to be changed. That's what happened in 45. That's what happened in 79. And since the financial crash in 2008, the British economy, along with the, the, the Western world in general, has constantly failed. We've had perma crisis, as some people are calling it. There hasn't been a single year. I tell my students now, you know, in, in the olden days, there were some years when not very much happened. Mm. Their whole lives that they've been adults or near adults from 2008 to now has been crisis. The capitalist system is not working well. Mm. And we need a change in the economics, the economic policy. And that's the transformational agenda that Labour faces. And there is now an open question, do they want to take
1: charge Rise of and say, it and say, that's, what, that's yeah. what we're going to do. Yeah. And and merely arguing that they will be more competent is not enough, is it? it it's about framing it in that kind of context.
2: So there's, So it's, for, it's, it's having the plans to deal with it. That's what they need. Yeah. So Minor adjustments to the way the system works now, the economic system works now, are not going to deal with these problems. We're not going to deal with a dysfunctional labour market, an overly financialized city and companies, uh, an environmental and climate crisis. It, we're not going to deal with those through minor tinkering. We need structural reform. So we need the policies. And then labour needs, in a sense, to do what Wilson did and to some extent what Thatcher did and definitely what Blair did, which is to say... This is a moment of change and we are going to be the vehicles of that change. And I think many people in the British public, even if they don't understand the details, know that we're in a pretty poor situation and we need some radical change.
1: You've very much been at the sort of ideas, policy development wing of politics. How important do you think leadership is? In other words, do you think it's inevitable that I think you described this as a a, a moment, a transformative moment, that such is the scale of the crises facing Britain and other countries, um, that change is inevitable? Or is it as much about who leads? In other words, 79 and Thatcher, Britain could have gone all kinds of other ways. Couldn't it could have followed a German model or whatever, but it went that way. Uh, so how important is leadership, in your view, from your perspective as a pioneer of ideas and policy ideas? As somebody who comes from
2: the left, where it's tended to be the great forces of history that are the kind of motors of change, uh, I have been a reluctant convert to not quite the great man theory, definitely not the great man theory, because it uh, – but – but a sense that leadership really is important, and that the leader um, is is critical really to capture the public imagination. Political, you need policy change. And the policy is very technical. And you can get really into the weeds. And somebody like me was really quite interested in policy, you know, get into the weeds of the kinds of policy. But what enables a government, what legitimizes a government to make radical policy change is their communication with the public. Democracy is absolutely critical in this. We are not a technocracy. We are a democracy, which means that the public have got to at least consent to what politicians are offering. And inevitably, in a media age, that is expressed through the communication of the leader. I mean, Mm -hmm. other politicians, you know, sometimes chancellors, somebody can recognise the chancellor, but mostly the public recognise the leader. They're not following politics very closely. And so that capacity to communicate really with the public and capture the sense that they, they are, make people confident in what they're doing. I think it really is important. And I think you need a courage to do that. You need a courage to take difficult decisions. And you need an extraordinary self-confidence that what you're doing will work. You will probably go through some, year, through some very difficult years when it looks like it isn't working. You're being criticized in all times, at all from all sides. And you say, no, we are on the right track. So personal confidence is, I think, huge. You know, I worked with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. These were very confident men. Margaret Thatcher, I saw from afar, a very confident woman. I mean, an extraordinary woman to have that confidence surrounded by only men. Uh, I mean, really extraordinary, I think, looking back. And a Clem Attlee you know, even in his quiet way, very, very confident, and then surrounded by people who knew what they were doing with canes and as their kind of intellectual backers. And I do think leadership is critical. And I think leaders, leaders are are made, they are not just, you know, they're not just born. And they're made in office when they take when they have a challenge and so on. You definitely saw that with Blair and and Brown. So I don't think, uh, you know, Kirstama does not look as if he's yet that kind of politician. But I think politicians rise to the occasion. And I think that is still, that is still uh, possible. But I, I don't think there's any question that you can face the same circumstances even with the same ideals and you can be defeated by the events that you confront particularly the deep problems mm. or you can take take the bull by the horns as it were and be transformative and that's clearly what we need now
1: yeah it is it is both personalities and policies to revisit. Do you remember Tony Benn? You said the policies, not the personality. Yes, and he there it's, he was, being a huge personality. personality. He,
2: was. he was a huge personality, and he was a brilliant communicator. Yeah, he was. And the reason people became Benites the old left, part of the old uh, uh, of old Labour, was because of his personality. He was a really good communicator. And yes,
1: so that was always a very paradoxical thing that he said, as I'm sure he knew. I bet he knew. Look, Michael, thanks so much for giving up the time to uh, join us all on uh, we call My it the Rock and Roll Politics co because everyone's involved who listens. Um, and no doubt they will be uh, responding to your comments. Thank you very much. Uh, that's it for this week, the second podcast of the week. But we will all get together very soon, early next week, to uh, make sense of it all. And as I say, live at King's Place on Thursday, March the 23rd, uh, that next Thursday. Oh, yeah, And on Tuesday in Birmingham. And do subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, See you then. Have a great time. Bye.